Welcome to Breaking Ground. I'm your host, Devin Kolka. On this show, we bring in leaders in the business, real estate, and construction industries. Today's guest is Jesse Giordano. Jesse was LLS's 2020 Man of the Year and is the principal and co-founder of Opal Wealth Advisors. We're really excited to have Jesse on today. Welcome to the show. So we're here with Jesse Giordano, principal and co-founder of Opal Wealth Advisors, Long Island's Man of the Year, and for the nation, runner-up out of a thousand candidates. That's just incredible, raising $437,000. How do you do something so magnificent in a time when the world is in such a, a bad place? Yeah. Thanks, Devin. I appreciate the acknowledgement there. I, um, yeah, I've been involved in the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society for about 15 years in many different ways and uh, got involved in a big way a few years ago when I was invited to share my story about childhood cancer. And uh, I was eight years old when I was diagnosed with leukemia, uh, with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, there's a real profound moment that I'll never forget. And uh, it's about uh, several months into my treatment. There's only a couple of months left. And the doctors had tried to, um, and nurses were trying to get a vein for the IV. And they stuck me about 15 times and they couldn't get the thing. And uh, I was crying, begging my parents to let me go home. And um, my mom stepped out because she was having a hard time just being with how difficult it was for me. My dad was trying to convince me that it's, it's okay, let's just tough it out. We can just, just a few more times. And then I said, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. And my dad um, just like trying to comfort me and it walks around the corner as Dr. Weinblatt, he's the, he's responsible for every child on that floor. Every child who's going through treatment for cancer. And uh, he walks over and he says, Jesse, what's wrong? And he's wearing this uh, striped um, yellow and brown and off-white uh, button-down shirt. And he's got these olive corduroy pants and a Mickey Mouse tie and Mickey Mouse yarmulke on a play school stethoscope. And he said, I just want to go home. And... Uh, he grabbed my hand and he kneeled down on the floor and he says, don't worry, I got you. And his, he just sat there with me and I relaxed. And on the very next attempt, they got the vein. What was meaningful or really moving for me about that moment, like that memory will last forever, is that um, even though he was responsible for every child, he knew the most important thing to was just to be, just be with me. And um, I think the most important lesson I got out of the whole thing is one person, one cause, one mission at a time, and we can change the world. It's a powerful story. It's, yeah. It really is, is moving. And I've heard you uh, tell the story to, to rooms of 20, 30, 50 people before, and you can see how you opening up really, you know, touches people mm -hmm. and motivates people. But my question for you is, you have such passion now. Is this, you know, the moment in your life that you've carried along with you that has given you passion day in and day out for what you're doing? Well, certainly when I decided to run for Man of the Year for Looking in the Foma Society, like 
that moment is something that's in the background that drives me in such a big way. And um, when people ask, like you did, about uh, how did I do that during the pandemic? How did we raise so much money? Um, you know, we put that team together four weeks out before the campaign started, a couple of weeks after the shutdown, the global shutdown. And I think what drove me was just the passion of it. Like it was uh, when I heard that the charity can be hit in a big way for fundraising as much as you know, 50% decline in fundraising dollars. That was, it, it just, I, there was no way I was going to let that happen. Um, and it wasn't like an intellectual thing. It was almost like a reaction. I, it just, I, it just hurt me. You know, it's like, there was no way I could see it fail. And, um, it's funny because I've been asked to run for man of the year a couple of times over the last several years. And I always said, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Just like it was, it was just seemed like the thing to do because it was so personal to me. Like it meant so much to me. Like um, it was a going through childhood cancer was one of those moments that um, they were painful moments, painful memories. Um, I still the most. I'm forty three now, and I was eight years old when I went through treatment. It was just before my ninth birthday that I finished chemo, um, but the in what Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has given me the opportunity to do is to explore my story and share my story, not from a place of pain, but from um, an opportunity to inspire other people to come together in a movement for good. And um, I ultimately really have realized is that my past difficult experience with cancer was a superpower when I shared it. It wasn't a painful place, it was a superpower because every time I talked about it, it was hard, every time. Um, and it's still hard. Um, but every time I talked about it, people wanted to say, okay, what are we gonna do about it? It's absolutely a, a superpower. One thing you know, I always talk about is, is, is fear is a person's worst enemy. Um, if you don't believe in something, if you're, you're scared of doing something, you might as well count it out. And I imagine that in the midst of a, a global pandemic, there must have been a fear from you and your whole team of how are we gonna ask for money when times are so tough? How, how did you get past that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and fear is something um, we all experience. It's if we, if, if we don't have fear, our heart's no longer beating. Um, I think where, there's a few things. Um, one, when we get really clear about what's really most important to us and why, why it's most important to us. It's, um, at least for me, it's by looking like as a childhood cancer survivor and the good that I get to provide uh, by sharing my story with others. Like it gave me, it's, it, it, drowns out the fear because it's like I'm able to pull out this passion for myself. That's that's what happened. And what I've noticed by working with other patients and survivors um, and by or, or family members and helping them tell their story, it's like they get connected to something that just lights them up that can take them over. So one of the things that we did with the, the campaign to overcome their, the, their fears was, was to help everyone tell their story and to get clear as to what is their story it, um, 
And it doesn't necessarily have to be their own personal experience as a survivor, or maybe that they had a loved one that they lost, or someone close to them that saw them go through something meaningful uh, or difficult. It doesn't always have to be cancer-related. It could be a story that moved them about somebody else. And inside that story, they saw what their life could be about. Maybe their whole life, or at least this moment in time, something inspired them. And given um, the COVID shutdown, um, people were really looking for something to be a part of. Uh, and that inspired me. Um, in, 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 there's um, Peter Mangas is, a, is, is a, a gentleman that we both know who's involved in LLS. And he said at a, in a, a meeting that we were both a part of, he said, everybody wakes up in the morning wanting to know their life is about something. Right? That, they, that they woke up and they, they made a difference. That their life made a difference. They just don't know how. And they're waiting for someone to, to give them a chance and to give them a direction, to give them an opportunity. So it's up to us to invite people to have those opportunities and to just present them to them. And that's what I did with this team. I just said, you know, I shared with my personal experience. I talked about what was, what the impact of the COVID shutdown was having on an organization that meant so much to me. They got inspired by being a part of something that was bigger than themselves. And they got to belong to a community that was all doing that together. Now, fear will show up <laughs> right after that. Like, I am so excited. Like, oh, now I have to ask people for money in the shutdown. Like, that's going to be like, ah! You know, right immediately that's going to be there, you know, with, with a, within a few moments later, after like the excitement and the inspiration subsides. And here's what I've um, you know, learned from several mentors around fear. And it's something that shows up for me every moment uh, that I choose something bigger than me. And that's, we have two main fears. One is the fear of acknowledgement. Like, oh my God, I'm putting myself out there. Like, I have that, what are people are going to say? Like, I don't want to, I hate being acknowledged in many cases. But people hate being rejected, too. Uh, well, then there you go. There's number two, the fear of failure. That fear of that rejection is the other aspect of fear that we hate. And what's fascinating, what I've learned to, um, through some great mentors, is to the fear of failure. Mostly what, when we think of failure and the fear of failing, what we, what we say is, is I failed. I failed at something that I, which is me, which is a constant, which I can't change, is the failure, as if I'm the problem. So because we say I failed, if there's a risk of doing something and failing, I, it's almost safer. It feels safer not to do it at all than to take the risk of being the source of the problem. But when you look at failure in the dictionary, it doesn't say that the person who did it is the problem. What it says is that the intended result from the actions taken did not, was not accomplished. We did not, the, that the actions taken did not achieve the intended result. Nowhere does it say that Devin Culker or Jesse Giordano or the person who's taking those actions were the problem. But when we shift, so when we shift away failure from the person and the I and put it on the actions and it's just the actions that failed, not the person, it can actually be, become empowering. Because if it's not Jesse, the I that failed or the Devin that failed, but it's just the action that's failed, what, what can we do? 
I feel like, as you know, um, being involved in LLS, I ask a lot of people to get involved some, some way, some form. And I do that because I truly feel like I'm, I'm giving an opportunity to somebody. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know um, what their home life is like. And if I'm saying no for them, I'm depriving them of that opportunity yeah. to make a difference in life, to feel like you're making a difference, to feel fulfilled. Yeah. And it's important to get over that and just make the ask. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And if they say no, it's okay. And it's okay. And if you have a commitment to finding more people to do this, what do you do next? Go ask more people. Go ask more people. Right, so it's so. What's beautiful about what you what you said? It's you shifted away from you, Devin, the I from I failed to providing someone the opportunity, which is a beautiful shift in the context and how you relate to that. But in in if we break that down to the simplicity of what you did was you said the action that I'm taking is giving someone an opportunity, and they either choose to do it or not. And if they say no. I'll, and you have a commitment to find more people for this cause, you just take a new action. So when we shift the context of failure from us to the actions, it becomes empowering because then we just do it again and again and again and again. And then it goes back to what we sh I started with this. What we we're talking about in the beginning is that when we share our story or something that's really meaningful to us and we give people an opportunity to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves and to belong to a cause, it's very inspiring, and if it doesn't work out in, the next, in that case, we don't get the outcome that we wanted, we just do it again it's, and do it again. It's very inspiring, and you're actually the one who talked me into sharing my story, which you know I've only shared a few times publicly since that first time, um, but I was scared. I was scared that people would judge me. I was scared that um, people wouldn't look at me in the same. That moment, after I was crying and I looked up at the room of 30 people and every single one of them, like I felt like was staring into my soul, had tears in their eyes. It was one of the most moving moments I've ever had in my life. Um, you know, I ran right into Danielle's arms and, and cried into her arms and it's a powerful thing. And I think people need to share their stories more often even when you're scared to, at the end of the day, everybody, are, we're human beings. We all have issues, we all have problems. We all, some of us made choices in life that weren't the best. Some of us were just dealt with cards where, you know, there was nothing you could do. You, you had cancer, you could not have prevented that, but you overcame that. And uh, being able to articulate your stories is, it's an amazing thing and I thank you for putting the pressure on me to share that because I wouldn't have. And, and so thank you. Um, I just, you know, I, I, I want to underline something there is that there, there, our greatest leadership invites us to be a part of something that's bigger than us by ourselves. But, and they bring authenticity, like they bring their humanity to it, which makes it okay for everybody there to experience their own. And it allows them to separate their fears and how they guard and protect themselves. Like it allows them to say, I don't need to be afraid because the leader is one of themselves out there. And that's what you did in that day when you shared your personal story and, and, and moved that. Room. And I had people running up to me afterwards saying, 
I relate, you know, I, I've had this, or, or somebody I know did this, and it's, it's, you don't know what people are going through in life, yeah. but they're, they're going through things, and the fact that, you know, I was able to share, and, and the humanity behind it, people, people love it, yeah. people love it. Yeah, immediate, immediate connection. Absolutely. Relatability. Yeah. Absolutely. I think at that moment, if I asked everyone to run through the sheetrock wall, they would have been like, I'm following you through that wall. You know, and it's so awesome. I'm following you through that wall because they found that relatability. And even if they didn't have the same story, the same theme, every single person can relate to difficulty and the humanity that's there and the courage to step beyond it. And at the very least, they want the courage that you displayed to share that story so authentically with each of them. And, um, you know, to bring it just back to the campaign for a second, for the Man of the Year campaign, a number of the people that I invited to be on my team, I, I, you know, I, I had no idea how we were going to do this. I said, I'm just invite everybody I know to be a part of the team. I'm just going to ask everybody. And you had four weeks to do it. Well, yeah, we had 100 people say yes. 100 people say yes in four weeks. And I just said it over and over. But all the, everybody I know, like, I had no idea. And it's funny because you said before, like, say, don't say no for people. Just give them the opportunity. Like, I was like, what's the cancer connection and so forth? But eventually I said, screw it. I'm just going to write everybody's name down. And here's what someone, my um, friend Amy said to me recently. And and um, I, I asked her to be a part of the team, not knowing if she had a connection at all, but I just knew she was a great person. And I asked her a few a couple weeks ago, I said, why did you say yes? She says, well, actually, Jess, the reason why I said yes at first was you. Like, you asked me, and it was so important to you. And I was helping, I wanted to help out. But shortly thereafter, she's like, I remember Jacob, a boy who had leukemia that used to babysit, who passed away when I was babysitting him, like during that time. And I haven't thought about him in 25 years. And then there's my best friend, and she's now battling AML. So it began because you asked me. But after time of like sitting in it, I actually found my own reason for continuing and thriving and pushing forward. So it's like those leaders who put their courage forward, invite people to follow them. But in that journey, people discover their own reason for being a part of it. And it's like the whole collective energy of everybody's personal why aligned in one destination is powerful. And we can achieve, and what's, I think what the most inspiring thing for me is that we can achieve anything regardless of the circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. So you had that, that one moving story as a child, but then you kind of got yourself into a rut, if I remember correctly, and you were in, a, in another bad place, I think mentally, physically. Um, I believe you know, it led to a divorce, one that um, you, know, you both saw coming, but probably a lot of it was decisions and actions and thought process. and. It's something you also yeah. talk about a lot. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah. Six years ago, I went through a divorce. It was a big shift in my life. It was like a great unraveling, so to speak. Um, it was uh, January, and uh, I was getting ready for a business trip. It was 6 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I was in my guest room getting ready. And um, I was in the guest room because I didn't want to wake my wife up who was sleeping, sleeping in the bedroom. And... As I'm finishing getting ready, the car is outside to take me to the airport. And I hear my wife get out of bed. I hear her walk into the room and she sits down at the end of the bed and she says, um, what happened to us? 
And what she meant by that is like what happened to our relationship. And um, over the previous several months, we had been together for about 10 years, but over the last couple of years, we had really grown apart. And a lot of that, I'd say most of that, was a result of how I got wrapped up in money and career success, like some pursuit of some destination that no matter how hard I worked, I would never actually get to where I want to go, no matter how much effort I put in. It just seems like it was getting further and further away. Um, I ultimately, my wife and my wife moved out. We separated, and um, I was introduced to um, several people that helped change my life. Not the least of which was this woman named Dr. Shafali, and um, she was a as a psychologist. And my business partner introduced me to her, and. Um, it got to the opportunity to explore many decisions I made in life, throughout my life, one of which was how childhood cancer affected me, uh, like the vulnerability that I had and trepidation I had as a young child to take risks because it's just that fear that something could go wrong, like something can go wrong at the moment. The other moment that I really explored that um, I didn't really, I didn't realize, I knew cancer impacted me in some way, how could it not? But the other moment was like looking at my parents' um, divorce. And um, throughout high school, my parents fought a bit. And I remember one day, I was standing in uh, the, com- um, the hallway of my house. And my dad walks in with one of his coworkers. And they walk down the hall into the bedroom and they pick up his dresser. And they walk down the hallway out the front door. And I can like see them through the window, like pushing the uh, dresser into the back of the pickup truck and in that moment I can feel like the, I can still feel like the tension on my neck and in my back and I remember thinking to myself like I, you can't be happy without money and I have to do it on my own because I can't trust people I got to do it on my own and life for me I thought I wanted to be at that point I thought I wanted to go to healthcare I wanted to be a doctor I then said that my parents worked so hard in a small business and they had some struggles and difficulties. Like I had to figure how to do things on my own so I could be happy on my own. And um, I had to do it myself because I don't know if I can trust people to do it with me. And so I actually, I got every money book, every business book I could find. I, I went back to school for finance. I, became a financial advisor so I can work by myself, working with people, like I didn't have to worry about other people involved. Um, And so I was in, tried to do some teaming early on and work with other people in other groups. It never worked out because what was always there for me is I can't trust you. I have to have financial success. I gotta do this on my own. I'm not gonna be happy if I don't do it that way. And that became like a repetitive cycle for me. And ultimately, you you follow that through like a number of years um, I remember thinking to myself, if like, if, if I, maybe if I got married, maybe if I did these things, then I'll be happy, then I'll be fulfilled. And ultimately after I, you know, after I got married, that what concern was right there is like, in order to be successful, in order to be able to achieve things, I've got to do it on my own. So ultimately that led to a divorce. You know, it was pretty amazing. was pretty remarkable about this is that that six years ago, I was, I was 35 pounds heavier than I am now. My cholesterol was 240. I was stressed out. I only had about a few friends that I really spoke to on a regular basis because everything was about like work and making it. Um, the the um, 
But at the same time, I was at the making more money than I ever had. And I, uh, uh, I was at like the top of the list for, for more, uh, for the company I worked for at that time, the uh, producers or so salespeople. And I was miserable at the same time. So how do you, how do you get past that? I have, uh, one of my best friends, somebody I care about deeply, was just served to the divorce papers this week. Yeah. And uh, I don't even think he knows I know yet. And, you know, I'm hoping to talk with him soon, but I don't think he's in a good place mentally right now. And he's obviously going to be very distraught. What's the saving grace? Like, what's, what yeah. do you look forward to? It was, it was a wake up moment for me. It was just like a slap in the face. And that's, you know, I remember sitting there with Dr. Shapali and she brought me back to that moment when my dad looked out. And remember what I said was, you can't be happy without money and career success. My parents were, in, in, in hindsight, today looking back, they were in good shape at the moment in time. All I can think about is like my dad leaving and my parents always talked about the small business that they were in together and there was always challenges. So what I made up is that I can't trust people and, you, and that my parents weren't successful enough in order to be happy. And that shift in my life. But I needed that moment to, to wake me up, my own divorce. I need to wake me up to be able to realize how that decision when my dad moved out shaped me in so many profound ways. And so as, in terms of your friend, I think he's in the maybe in the perfect spot for him to start looking. Now we can go in two directions. We can either go to like, we can get hunkered down and be right about our views of the situation. Or we can start to look and go, maybe there's something I'm missing. Now, unfortunately, we don't make many changes until we hit rock bottom. We have to hit, the, 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 the alcoholic has to maybe have a DWI or an accident, God forbid. Uh, we need to, the, the someone who's, um, the smoker may need to have a heart attack. Unfortunately, we don't make the changes we need to do until it's too late. But each of those moments give us an opportunity to like a wake up call that we can choose to see it as that, or like most of us do, to defend and protect ourselves, especially in vulnerable moments, we hunker down and get right about the way that we see the world. But it takes a lot of courage to say, okay, I'm going to give that up. Is there another way to see this? And that's what Dr. Shafali said to me. So for your friend, it might be a wake-up call. So bring lots of compassion and love. and Because it, it's, it's scary in those moments. So it's easy to get right about it. But if your friend can bring a lot of compassion and love and understanding, and just say, you know, you can start to offer them, is there maybe another way to see this? Maybe there's something that you're missing. Not that you're doing it wrong, but maybe there's just something that you're missing. No judgment. Like non-judgment and maybe it'll see a new way. And that's what Shafali did for me. Um, she had me see like that moment of that, that decision I made with my dad about you can't be happy without money and I have to do it all on my own. She had me start to look and say, uh, is there another way to see this? And I realized the profound impact that that decision made. And I went from, um, I went from seeing this as, um, you can't be happy without money. I remember telling her, I go, money's the root of all evil. Like, I'm gonna leave the finance business. I'm out of here. And she, said, she says this, can you see that that's the same problem? I was like, what? Smart woman. Yeah, I, can you, you, 
I was like, how is that the same problem? I remember like, how is that the same problem? You can't be happy without money, and you, uh, money's the root of all evil, clearly distinct from each other, opposite spectrums. And she says, it's not money that's the problem. It's your relationship to it. And then my whole life, like, was there. At least since my parents divorced. Light bulb just went off. I like it, a light bulb went off. I felt like my brain broke. It like was I was it was like shocking. Like it was all of a sudden like the world was a different color. It was such a smack for me to wake up, and I it was startling. Actually, I remember feeling nauseous because it was just like oh my god, you know, like this whole. And then the next day, I remembered like looking around and how much like life was about getting to some destination, like some material dollar amount measure, statistical destination. And I think what really inspired me the most, like what was the like that was a great unraveling, but it helped me see something new. And it gave me a whole new meaning and fulfillment in the work I do professionally. And that's it's if you want real freedom around money, whatever that financial freedom term means that every financial firm puts on television because they want to make more money. But if you want real freedom with money, we have to take money as the goal out of the, out of, out of the foreground. If we take money out of the way and just put it over here, right, and then we just get really clear what we want for ourselves and our future, like what would light us up and allow that, put that in the forefront, put it up there, then money is just a structure. It's a tool. It's a resource. Like these business skills that you can learn in here, there are more tools and more resources that if we can use as a structure to help fuel the things that we want. And then it becomes cyclical. So then we, like, as in pursuing the things that are really important to us, we become passionate, we become lit, lit up. And because of that, we attract more tools and more resources to us because of our passion, people want to connect to it. And then wealth can grow. Now, it's not that you can abdicate or pretend like just, you can't ignore wealth either. Like you have, to, you have to put the right structures in place, but obsessing over the structures won't cause the results. So if we're gonna play football, do you watch football? You're a big football oh, yeah. guy, right? right. So if, if, if their goal, if we want to play, if we want to win the game of football, football is a game of, if we simplify it, running, passing, blocking, and tackling, right? It's a running game, we pass the ball, we block, and we tackle. If we play that game well, what will we get expressed as a result of playing that game well is points on the scoreboard. Points on the scoreboard will show up as a result of running well, passing well, blocking, and tackling. But if we go for the points only, just the points, and forget about playing the game. Just go for the points because the points are the only end game. You're gonna lose the game. You're gonna lose the game. Or we'll cheat. Maybe we'll deflate the football in order to be able to play it better. Right? Then are we get diverted or distracted from the actual play of the game that actually fulfills us? It's wild stuff. I love it. And uh, your, your clients must be really happy because I'm sure you share that with them. It's that. You know, wealth is important. We all need wealth in life. We all um, need money in life. It, it makes the world go round, but it's not the chase of money. You yeah. shouldn't be chasing money. You sh money is a resource that will help you achieve the things you want in life, whether that is giving back to your community, whether that is, you know, being able to have a second home, whatever it is, money is just a resource and that's not what you should be working for. Yeah, I think we all know that. 
death. And, and I think, you know, as we get older, we have more moments where we realize how we get, you know, when we're younger, you know, when we're younger, it's, it seems it's, it's a shiny object. And we, as, as a bunch of our clients get older too, um, and see them pursue things that are important to them. They all move closer and closer to time with family and things that are important to them. So it's like a life's journey. We get wiser, I guess. But it's still that in our culture, you know, money is, is in, a, in, a, in our society, it's just such a, uh, a measurement of achievement. So we know that that's not a good idea, but it's, it's reinforced for us how that it's, that, that's in conflict. So it's like at some gut level, we're like, no, no, but yes, but yes, but. So it sounds nice, but at some level, we don't entirely believe that. Um, but, you know, when we have, so the work that we do with clients at, at Opal Wealth Advisors, the reason why we started this firm is to not just do financial planning, but also do financial, what we call financial life planning. It's, it's when we talk about the life issues that we want to fulfill, we just got to put the right financial structures together to fulfill upon those life issues. But those goal, like to talk about personal goals, like it's tough. Like what's your goals this year? I don't know. We mostly make them up. We do financial goals. We say 80% of what I made last year in the last year of retirement, maybe I should need 80%. It's an arbitrary number. Like how do we come up with these numbers? But then we talk about, you know, one of, the, one of the more inspiring things is to think about how do we want to be remembered? Like, how do we want to, like, what will people say at our funeral? What do you want people to talk about us when we're gone? How have we left people in the communities, in the areas of life that are important to us? And so part of our conversations with people is, is to begin, and our clients, is to begin to explore that. And how do we want to be remembered at the end? You can write your own eulogy of what people would say. And then you can start to break that down from the end game, the real end game, uh, the end one for each of us, and to start to look at the various areas of life and how that impacts from family, community, uh, from organizations and causes that are important to us. And we can break that down to personal financial gains. We break these down to all these areas of life that are critical for us. Um, you know, our children, whatever they are, and start to define them in the end. Like, what does it look like? Describe it. Like, get creative. Like, explore it. Like, let yourself go. And then from when that's all mapped out, you can break it down to 10-year goals and start to make it tangible. And then say, where do I want to be? In, in order to be fulfilled at the end of life, where do I need to be in, in 10 years from now? And define that by all areas. And then break it down to three-year goals. Chunk it down. Simplify and then take those three-year goals and make it a one-year goal. And you have your 2020, you have four or five months left, make your 2020 focus for the year. What are the key areas to stay on track for when I want to be in three years? Where do I need to be over this next year? And then you can break it down to quarterly goals and you can have daily focuses. So when I start my daily plans every day, I look at my core focuses, the most important things for me that will keep me on track for the end game. And I make sure that I fit at least one action every day that will move me closer. Because you start to compound those little actions every day, massive results over the next 10 years. Like we tend to underestimate what we can accomplish by taking small actions each day, like compounded out what that's achievable. And um, I think the last thing I would say on that is um, don't get locked in on where you're going to be in the end. Don't get like over, like, oh, I got to get it perfect. Here's what I would say is just don't, don't stop asking the question is where, where do I want to be in the end? Like, what would have me fulfilled? Don't stop asking the questions. 
once you get finite about you know we know the answer already, then we stop dreaming about what's possible. And it's that dreaming and it's the pursuit where we ultimately find fulfillment. When it's finite, it becomes a structure. And what's giving a finite structure is usually fear anyway. It's, it's so to bring it back to the fear question before. Well, we will, we will constrain ourselves. We'll hold ourselves back because we're afraid to dream. But if we just, we don't have, if we can give up on the measure, we can give up on the answer, and we can just keep asking ourselves, what would it look like at my end of life to be incredibly fulfilled? and never answer the question for the last time, just keep asking that question. We'll keep growing, we'll keep expanding, we'll keep loving life and living a life that's fulfilled. Jesse, powerful stuff. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Keep kicking ass at Opal Wealth Advisors. Congratulations again on uh, LLS's Man of the Year. Um, you did incredible stuff this year and you're gonna continue to do incredible, incredible things. Should probably have your own show because you know the, the stuff you say is is incredible so thank you yeah, thank you Ed Devin this is uh an incredible experience and um you're one of the most extraordinary young men that I have ever met you inspire me every day so I appreciate that yeah.